Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 5 of the UK's first Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. I'm here to guide you through the decisions of the Information Commissioner and the Information Tribunal published in February 2007. Amongst other things, this month we will be hearing about the first practice direction issued by the Information Commissioner, the review of the Records Management Code of Practice, the release of information about ASBOs, the link between the Enterprise Act and Freedom of Information, and the case of the speeding police bus. We also have an interview with Susan Healy of the National Archives and comment and analysis from Tim Turner of Wigan Council. Records management is continuing to climb up the corporate agenda as more Information Commissioner decisions are published. In Episode 1, we discussed the Information Tribunal's decision involving Nottingham City Council. The Tribunal recommended that the Information Commissioner should make practice recommendations to the Council, the first of which have now been published. It requires Nottingham City Council to take various steps relating to aspects of the Section 45 Code of Practice, including advice and assistance, transferring requests, and the complaints procedure. This is the first practice recommendation ever made by the Information Commissioner. In addition, the Commissioner has asked the National Archives to conduct an assessment of the records management capabilities of the Council. This assessment will take place later this year and will form the basis of a separate practice recommendation. Full details are on the Information Commissioner's website. Work is now getting underway to review and revise the Section 46 Code of Practice on Records Management. Susan Healy is an Information Policy Consultant at the National Archives and is leading the review. Susan joins me on the line now to discuss her work. Hello Susan, welcome to the podcast. What are the reasons for the review and what's wrong with the current code? When the code was issued in November 2002, it was actually on the basis that it would be reviewed and if necessary revised five years after publication. Now this was in contrast to the other code, the code under section 45, which was to be and indeed was reviewed and revised before 1st of January 2005 when the rights of access came in. So review by November 2007 has always been intended and the National Archives has always had it, had it on its to-do list for this year. But there are other reasons and one of the most important relates to electronic records. The content relating to electronic records does need updating. At present they're covered separately in five paragraphs at the end of part one of the code, section 10. And while those paragraphs aren't wrong, they do need updating. Um, I mean, electronic records really are now so widespread and electronic records just need mainstreaming in the code rather than being in a separate section. Mm -hmm. And the impact of electronic records was actually picked up by the Constitutional Affairs Select Committee in its report last year on implementation of FOI. And they highlighted the need to give more attention to the management and preservation of electronic records. And so, you know, this is what we're trying to do. Um, I mean, other reasons are that the scope to streamline the code is to clarify and simplify its provisions and perhaps focus rather more on principles and outcomes, mm. reduce some of the process level detail. Um, another thing we can do is make better connections between the code and other information legislation and policy. Data protection, for example. Now, data protection requires good records management practices to be applied to personal data, and we could make that clearer. Right. And then, finally, to return to the second part of your, your question about what's wrong with the code. In fact, mm. it's not that anything's wrong with it. The principles that underlie the practices it sets out actually remain sound, but it does need updating. How long is this review going to take, and when can we expect a final version? Well, 
revised version early next year, but we do have a long way to go yet. Now, we've deliberately extended the time it will take by introducing the review stage, which started a week or so ago. Now, this is to give people an opportunity to show us what changes they like, and those views can then feed into the revision. The alternative would have been to go ahead and revise the code and then consult people about the revised version. But we decided we'd prefer to include a review stage, review stage initially. And that's what started a couple of weeks ago. We have a deadline for responses of Friday the 6th of April. And we, what we'll then do is analyze those responses and then feed them into the revision. And we'll then consult on the revised version, which will include a full public consultation. Is that the only way that practitioners can get involved in the review? No, there are a number of ways in which practitioners can get involved. I mean, first, as you say, responding to our request for comments and suggestions. And this is, I would like to emphasize this, it is a real opportunity for practitioners to present the views which they've formed in their experience of applying the code. We just need them to do it by Friday the 6th of April. Mm. But there are other opportunities. Now, we're setting up two working groups. One for part one, now that's the part that sets out good practice in records management. And one for part two, and that's the part that sets out how public records are to be reviewed and transferred to the National Archives or to another archives office. Now, those working groups will have representatives from key government departments, obviously, and from Wales and Northern Ireland. But we've also asked the four FOI sector panels, which the Department for Constitutional Affairs set up, if they'd each like to nominate a representative. And that would bring in expertise from local government, the police, the NHS and higher education, which I think would be very useful. They'll also then be able to respond to the public consultation on the revised code, but that is some months down the line. Finally, Susan, in a number of decisions, the Commissioner has considered the records management of the public authority. Any views on these decisions? That's a very interesting point. I've been keeping an eye on ICO decisions and indeed tribunal decisions for some time now, so as to identify records management implications. And one of the things I've noticed and been very impressed by recently is that the Commissioner is asking really probing questions about records management during complaint investigations. Now, an example, if you look at the Canterbury City Council case, that's, I do have the reference, it's FS 5009-2946, and you will find some very detailed questions about records management that were put to the council. Um, there are questions about what information is held, what's been provided to the complainant or withheld, was more information ever held, and if so, when was it deleted, and is there a record of deletion? They ask about the authority's records management and retention policy, and if there isn't a relevant policy, how comparable records of the same age have been handled. They ask why information might have been held in terms of legal requirements and business purposes. And they ask whether any similar information that might be of use to the applicant is held, and if so, he's been advised. Now, if you're going to answer these questions adequately, you really need good, good knowledge of your organisation's records and how they've been managed and disposed of. But you also need good records of how you've handled your FOI requests. Mm. So both of those angles, I think, are very important. Susan Healy, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, and I look forward to getting your comments as well as everybody else's. Comments and suggestions on the code can be emailed to susan.healy at nationalarchives.gov.uk. The deadline for your comments is Friday the 6th of April. Strangely this month there have been no decisions published by the Information Tribunal. So let's move on to decisions made by the Information Commissioner, of which there were 31. Three of these have been about the environmental information regulations. Public authorities still seem to be confused as to when a request should be dealt with under the regulations. 
The Information Commissioner has now stated that he will not enter into any academic discussion about which regime applies as long as the end result is the same. In the decision involving Harlow Council, dated the 12th of February 2007, the complainant asked the public authority for a copy of the legal advice supplied to it in connection with a planning issue. The public authority withheld the information under Section 42, claiming legal professional privilege. The Commissioner found that the requested information should have been considered under the Environmental Information Regulations. Nevertheless, the claim that the information was subject to privilege still applied and the information was exempt from disclosure by virtue of Regulation 12.5b of the Environmental Information Regulations. Regulation 12.5f of the Regulations is the same as Section 40 of the Freedom of Information Act and requires the same factors to be considered. In the decision involving Lincolnshire Council dated the 15th of February 2007, the complainant requested copies of statements made by individuals about their use of the supposed route of a public footpath. The public authority released copies of statements where the writers consented, but refused to release the remaining statements on the basis that they were exempt under Section 40 of the Act. The Commissioner was satisfied that the information was appropriately withheld, although the Environmental Information Regulation should have been considered and applied, and the information should have been withheld under Regulation 12.5f. Act Now Training is running a full-day update course on the regulations. Full details are on their website, which is www.actnow.org.uk. Let's move on to talk about the decisions of the Information Commissioner concerning the Freedom of Information Act. As with every month, access to personal data featured heavily in February's decisions. In the decision involving Transport for London dated the 5th of February, the complainant requested details of compensation payments made to residents of a specific road under the Land Compensation Act. The public authority confirmed to the complainant the number of compensation offers that had been accepted by residents, but refused to disclose details of the size of individual payments to each resident on the basis that the information was exempt under Section 40, being personal data. The Commissioner decided to uphold the public authority's decision. This month there have been two very interesting Commissioner decisions on personal data. They concern the disclosure of salaries and information about those who have been given antisocial behaviour orders. With me to discuss these cases is Tim Turner, the Data Protection Officer at Wigan Council. Hello Tim, thanks for joining us. Let's take the decision involving Birmingham NHS Trust first. Please tell us what it was about. Um, Birmingham were asked for uh, a wide variety of information about a specific group of hospital doctors. Uh, things like their names, job titles, when they started their jobs, their salary bands, and then things like their gross and exact salaries, the additional hours that they worked. So it went into quite a lot of detail about the kinds of work that they did and the kinds of money that they received for it. And uh, what the but the hospital decided to do was to refuse all of it on the basis that it was personal data and they, they used the Section 40 exemption. Uh, later, when the complaint went to the Commissioner's office, the Commissioner um, argued that uh, quite a lot of this data should be disclosed and it came down to um, things like gross salaries and additional hours did not have to be disclosed and the exact salaries did not have to be disclosed. But everything else, the names, the job titles, when they started their jobs and their salary bands, all of this should be disclosed. What does it show about the Information Commissioner's approach to disclosing information about staff and salaries? I mean, the Commissioner in, in the decision 
decision said there's no hard and fast rules about how Section 40 should be used. And that's slightly disingenuous because I think he does argue in, in several decisions that senior staff exact and senior staff salaries should be disclosed. But I think what he's trying to do here is look at people who are not at the top tier of an organisation. And in particular, he looked at were they fit into the hierarchy of the organisation? Was there a more senior doctor uh, above them in, in the hierarchy? And because there was, he was drawn away from saying that their exact salary should be disclosed and also um, was not in, in favour of disclosing the actual hours that they worked. The contracted hours, which might have been in a, in a job advert, was, was to be disclosed. But he didn't want to look at the detail. A lot of what he said came down to fairness, that because these people were not at the very top of the organisation, the Commissioner's view was that it was not fair to disclose something that was very personal in terms of what they were paid or, or what they took home. And it was also unfair to disclose how many hours that they were working because this might imply that they were doing too many and perhaps putting patients at risk or that they were doing more than their colleagues and, and therefore working harder than their colleagues. So the fairness aspect of data protection was, was crucial in deciding what to do. And so I think he's, you're looking at a situation now where very senior staff are very much in the firing line as far as um, their salaries are concerned when, when the commissioner's looking at it. People who are slightly below that level perhaps escape. One other factor that he draw in was that um, when you're looking at staff who have a relationship with the public, who work with the public and deal with the public on a daily basis, again, he thinks it's fairer to be disclosing their names and job titles than perhaps if they were purely backroom staff. I know that some commentators on FOI think every member of staff's details should be public because we're all paid by the public purse. But this decision does cite the fact that they had a public-facing role as being one of the factors that was considered. How much data do you think public authorities can now expect to disclose about their staff? I think part of it still depends on the approach of the data protection slash FOI officer, because not all of these complaints go to um, the commissioner. And there's, there's an extent to which, if you don't agree with the commissioner, um, maybe you'll continue along the, the, the practice that you've had up to now. I mean, when he says in, in his decision that he thinks there should be a greater degree of scrutiny over the role and accountability of, of senior staff actions, he doesn't relate that very specifically to why, you know, the, knowing the salary will increase that accountability, that scrutiny, because he talks about the role and the actions that a person takes, but not how the salary, knowing the salary, relates to that. So I think it's clear that the Commissioner's view is that very senior staff salaries should be disclosed, that people further down the, the, the corporate hierarchy perhaps deserve more protection, especially over the specific salaries that they're paid. But I think there's still a certain room for scepticism because he, he has made very clear statements of what his views are, but there's not as much evidence as I think there could be. So I think very senior staff salaries are definitely now uh, have to be looked at very carefully. But the further down the food chain you go, the more room for doubt there might be. Let's now turn to the decision involving Camden Council. Again, Tim, please remind us of the facts and the outcome. What, what happened with Camden was that they were asked for a copy of their ASBO database, which, um, as far as the applicant was concerned, should include the names and addresses of anyone who'd received an ASBO in Camden, um, the terms of the, the order and the nature of the order itself. 
personal data exemption and Section 31 that they, they argued that it would prejudice their ability to enforce the law. And one, is, one issue is that they didn't have the address. So what could have been quite a difficult issue to make a decision about, whether or not to, dis to disclose the address of the person, wasn't involved in the decision because uh, Camden just didn't hold that, the police hold that and they decided not to duplicate it. Uh, but the Commissioner's view was that uh, although there were certain issues that had to be borne in mind, the Home Office had published guidance and the Commissioner was, was, was guided by that. But where there wasn't re reporting restrictions or um, where there wasn't a genuine risk to the recipient of the ASBO themselves in, in publication, um, the Commissioner thought that the database should be published. Finally, Tim. A more general question. What effect is freedom of information having on the Data Protection Act? I think that there is a, a great amount of information that which we previously assumed wouldn't be disclosed is now going to be disclosed. You've got information about people's salaries, uh, you've got council house um, tenants' addresses, you've got all sorts of different types of information. The Commissioner is not saying these types of information are not personal data. He always goes through that process and always says this is personal data, but nevertheless, there are reasons why it should be disclosed. So I think it's, it's opening a huge range of information held by public authorities that now seems to be at least under consideration. And I, and I don't know where it's going to go because there's all sorts of things that I didn't imagine which are now uh, being published. So I think it's, it's opening the field very wide. Tim Turner, thank you very much for your time. If you're interested in access to personal data under FOI, please see my article in the March issue of World Data Protection Report, which is also available on the articles page of my website. A few months ago, the Scottish Information Commissioner released a decision involving Dumfries and Galloway Council. It indicated that the Commissioner does not consider Part 9 of the Enterprise Act to be a bar to disclosure under the Freedom of Information Scotland Act. A recent decision of the Information Commissioner in England shows that his view of Part 9 differs from the Scottish Commissioner. The decision involving East Sussex County Council was published on the 5th of February 2007. The complainant requested information from the Council Trading Standards section about its dealings with a named company, including complaints it had received about the company. The public authority refused to disclose the information, relying on Part 9 of the Enterprise Act which meant that Section 44 of the Freedom of Information Act could be claimed as a bar to disclosure. The Commissioner considered that the public authority had applied Section 44 correctly. The Commissioner has previously stated that public authorities do have commercial interests that the Section 43 exemption can be used to protect. However, this exemption is subject to the public interest test and it also depends on what kind of information is being requested and the likely effect of disclosure. In the decision involving the Royal Mail, dated the 5th of February, the complainant requested, amongst other things, the number of complaints made to a delivery office over a specified period and details of how many of those complaints were investigated and what action was taken. Both parts of the request were refused on the basis that the information was exempt under Section 43, being prejudicial to the commercial interests of the Royal Mail. The Commissioner concluded that Section 43 was not applicable. He took account of the fact that this was not particularly detailed information and on its own it would not have the suggested effect of being so useful to the competition that it would prejudice the public authorities' commercial interests. 
Local authorities continue to receive requests about the sale of land, and it's fair to say that in most cases, considering the public interest in transparency and openness in the spending of public money, the information will have to be disclosed. On the 1st of February 2007, the Commissioner decided upon the case involving Oxford City Council. The complainant requested details in relation to the sale of land at a farm in the area, which was developed into a football stadium and a cinema complex. The public authority refused to supply some of the information, citing Section 41, Breach of Confidence, and Section 43, Commercial Confidentiality. Following consideration of all the relevant factors, the Commissioner decided that the authority could not rely on the exemptions and the information should be disclosed. There have been a number of recent decisions about access to dead people's information. Where the applicant is asking for information about an next of kin, the information can be withheld on the grounds that it's available to the next of kin under the Access to Health Records Act 1990. This will in turn allow the public authority to withhold the information on the grounds of the exemption under Section 22. In Liverpool Women's NHS Trust, decided on the 19th of February 2007, the complainant requested a copy of a medical report written by a consultant regarding the care of his late mother. The public authority offered to provide the complainant with a copy of the report under the Access to Health Records Act on receipt of proof that he was the deceased person's personal representative. The public authority refused to supply the information under the Freedom of Information Act and cited the exemption at Section 21. The Information Commissioner agreed with this approach. For those interested in access to dead people's personal information, the decision in the Royal Surrey County Hospital, dated the 5th of February 2007, should be read. As we have discussed in episode 4, recent Information Commissioner's decisions state that when a public authority is considering giving access to a dead person's personal information, consideration must also be given to any duty of confidence owed to the deceased. Care must also be taken especially to ascertain what the wishes of the deceased were before they died. The decision involving County Durham NHS Primary Care Trust was published on the 22nd of February 2007. The complainant requested a summary of the medical care provided to her late mother. The public authority refused to provide this information and cited the exemption at section 41 for breach of confidence. It also stated that the applicant was not the deceased person's next of kin in accordance with the Access to Medical Records Act. Further to this, the public authority noted that the deceased person had expressed a wish to her GP for details of her health care not to be disclosed to her parents. The commissioner decided that disclosure would be a breach of confidence and therefore the information is exempt under Section 41. A useful body of information commissioner decisions have now developed in the area of vexatious requests. Decisions involving Birmingham City Council and Warwickshire County Council, to name a few, have really helped public authorities deal with nuisance requests and requests which clearly impose an unreasonable burden. Two recent cases provide further guidance. The decision involving West Midlands Passenger Transport Executive, also known as Centro, was published on the 30th of January 2007. Between January and November 2005, the same person made 15 requests to Centro concerning the authority's financial relationship with four bus companies. Centro provided a range of information to the requester. 
In November and December 2005, Centro received the 14th and 15th request and informed the requester that it would not be answering any further questions on this issue. Centro highlighted that it had already de provided detailed responses to requests, made offers of direct discussion and had already spent a considerable amount of time on this issue. The Commissioner was satisfied that replying to the complainant's 15th request would have imposed a significant and unreasonable burden on Centro. He also concluded that it was tantamount to harassing the public authority and that it was manifestly unreasonable. However, recent case suggests that the aggregate effect of a number of requests made to different public authorities is not a relevant consideration in deciding whether a request is vexatious. The decision involving Derbyshire Constabulary was decided on the 15th of February 2007. The complainant made requests for over 50 pieces of information to the organisations which consisted of the Derby Safety Camera Partnership. The requests were made over a total of 19 occasions and were all related to an alleged road traffic offence. The complainant received relevant information and advice in relation to his requests until he made a request dated 7th of March to Derbyshire Constabulary. This request was considered by the police to be vexatious and repeated. The partnership responded on behalf of the constabulary and refused to provide the information. The Commissioner considered that the requests were made to different partners within the partnership, each separately recognised by the Act, and so determined that the requests could not be aggregated for the purpose of applying Section 14. And finally, to the case of the speeding police crew bus. South Yorkshire Police were asked to disclose a copy of a photograph of a police crew bus caught speeding. The Commissioner decided that the exemptions at Section 38 and Section 40 were not engaged since the occupants could not be identified and that while Section 30, which concerned investigations and proceedings conducted by a public authority, was engaged, the public interest in disclosing the information was not outweighed by the public interest in withholding it. Consequently, the complaint was upheld. This is a useful decision because it provides detailed guidance on the factors which should be taken into account when deciding on public interest issues when applying Section 30. Paragraph 21 and 22 of the decision are well worth reading. That's all the decisions we have time for this month. Don't forget, Act Now Training is running a workshop series throughout the UK where these decisions will be discussed in detail. It also runs seminars on data protection, surveillance law and records management. Full details are at www.actnow.org.uk That concludes this month's podcast. This podcast was brought to you by me, Ibrahim Hassan. I specialise in all aspects of information rights law, particularly data protection, freedom of information and surveillance law. My clients include local authorities, the NHS and government departments. If you would like specific advice on any of your information law issues, please do not hesitate to contact me. Please continue to let me have your feedback. The scripts for all previous podcasts are available on my website. If you would like a copy of this month's script, please contact me via the site, which is www.informationlaw.org.uk. Until the next time, goodbye.